writer, inventor, scientist, historian, linguist, politician, nudist. Benjamin Franklin was many things, but these are just some of the labels for which he was known in his lifetime. Throughout much of the world, however, he is perhaps best remembered as one of the more emphatic and eccentric founders of a fledgling nation known as the United States of America. Born in Boston in 1706 to an English colonist father and an American-born mother from nearby Nantucket, the young Franklin came of age in a time of great civil unrest and social upheaval in colonial America, one that would ultimately lead to revolution. Yet even he could never have foreseen the greatness he would ultimately achieve by becoming one of the most significant and important figures in all of American history. Who was this most enigmatic man whose face now adorns the American $100 bill? What did he do prior to becoming a statesman? And what contributions did he make to the various arts and sciences? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Of two things you can be absolutely certain, death and taxes. Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Fish and visitors smell in three days. These pithy sayings, which serve more as aphorisms, all have one thing in common. They sprang from the mind of Benjamin Franklin and reveal a witty, light-hearted side to an otherwise serious figure. Each of these sayings has entered the American vernacular and are seen almost as virtues on how to be diligent and frugal, which was its author's initial intent. This makes sense given his background, which can best be described as the epitome of humble beginnings. The son of Josiah Franklin, a candlemaker, and Abia Folger Franklin, the descendant of a Puritan family, the couple would go on to have ten children, in addition to the seven Josiah had with his first wife and child. Though Josiah wished for the young Benjamin to attend school with the clergy, he only had enough money for two years' worth of his son's education. Thus, Benjamin attended the Boston Latin School for two years, but didn't graduate. His formal education having come to an end at the age of ten, he continued it on his own through voracious reading, all while working for his father. At twelve, he became an apprentice to his older brother, James, who was a printer and taught him the printing trade. James would go on to found the New England Courant, which held the distinction of being the first fully independent newspaper in America. From his teenage years, Benjamin already showed a great deal of prowess as a writer, noted for his scathing wit and considerable depth. It was at the age of fifteen that he began penning a series of letters to his brother James's newspaper under the pseudonym Silence Duguid, who was described as a middle-aged widow. These letters soon became a fixture in the New England Courant, and the subject of a great deal of conversation around Boston. Yet even James was unaware that his younger brother was the genius behind the letters, and was, purportedly, very unhappy upon finding out. Yet even as a precocious teenager, the first signs of Benjamin's future as a revolutionary figure began to emerge. In 1722, for example, James was arrested and jailed for three weeks for publishing quote-unquote unflattering material against the colonial governor of Massachusetts. In response, Benjamin, once again donning the identity of Mrs. Duguid, wrote a scathing letter to the New England Courant, advocating for the right of free speech. Without freedom of thought, he wrote, there can be no such thing as wisdom, and no such thing as public liberty without freedom of speech. The letter was met enthusiastically and with a great deal of praise. But two years later, at the age of 17, unhappy with his prospects in Boston, the young Benjamin ran away to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, abandoning his brother's apprenticeship without permission, and in doing so became a fugitive. Though his future was uncertain, it was the first step on his path towards greatness. 
Upon his arrival in Philadelphia, he took jobs at several printing shops around town, but quickly became dissatisfied with the prospects there as well. While working for a particular printing house, he was approached by the colonial governor of Pennsylvania, Sir William Keith, who convinced him to travel to London to acquire equipment to start his own Philadelphia newspaper. While Benjamin did, in fact, work in London for two years as a typesetter, he ultimately returned to Philadelphia in 1726 with the help of one Thomas Denham, a merchant who employed him as a clerk, bookkeeper, and shopkeeper. Ever the intellectual, Franklin would go on to form the Junto, also known as the Leather Apron Club, while employed by Denham in 1727. The organization's objective was to improve its members while simultaneously improving their community. Comprised of artisans and tradesmen, they would discuss the biggest issues of the day, namely politics, philosophy, and literature. As such, reading played an integral part in the club, but books were expensive to print and purchase. Therefore, its members created their own library, which still exists in Philadelphia to this day. The Junto would go on to inspire other similar groups throughout the city, though Franklin's would be the best known and outlive all the others. But he would, ultimately, take Sir William Keith's advice and start his own newspaper. This event would also serve as his first unofficial foray into politics. In 1729, after establishing a printing house with business partner Hugh Meredith, Franklin would found the Pennsylvania Gazette, which allowed him a forum to freely state his opinions on local reforms and initiatives through political essays. As circulation for the paper began to grow, so did respect for its founder's voice. Through it all, however, despite having achieved a great deal of fame in the process, he remained humble, signing each of his essays and letters in the same unassuming fashion, B. Franklin, printer. This interest in journalism, combined with the desire for uniquely American voices in the media outlets of the day, would spawn the idea to forge a network of intercolonial newspapers aimed at not only offering the news, but also promoting virtue. By 1753, eight of the fifteen English-language publications in America were owned and operated by Franklin and his subsidiaries. Fun fact, under his distributorship, the first woman printer in the colonial era, Elizabeth Timothy, rose to prominence. His success as a newspaper tycoon of sorts led to what is arguably his greatest contribution to early American letters, Poor Richard's Almanac. Begun in 1733, and still in publication to this day, it was chock full of insightful content, both original and borrowed, and featured those selfsame aphorisms quoted in the beginning of the episode. Typical of other such publications of the day, it also contained information about the weather, a calendar, poetry, astronomical and astrological readings, as well as the occasional math problem. The poor Richard of the title is none other than Richard Saunders, a man who never actually existed. He was, in typical Franklin fashion, yet another pseudonym through which he could freely express his opinions on frugality, courtesy, and virtue, with just a dash of snark and cynicism. It was the most successful pamphlet in the colonies and boasted some 10,000 copies sold each year. As the man behind several news publications, Franklin was naturally attuned to the happenings throughout colonial America. Such exposure led him further into politics and public affairs, especially as tensions rose with the mother country, that is, Great Britain. In 1747, having amassed a great deal of wealth through the circulation of his various newspapers, he retired from printing altogether. A year later, in 1748, he became involved in Philadelphia politics when he was elected as a councilman. In June of 1749, he became a justice of the peace, and two years after that was elected to the Pennsylvania Assembly. His rise in local government was swift and sure, though it didn't end there. 
On August 10, 1753, he was appointed Deputy Postmaster General of British North America, where he single-handedly introduced reforms to the postal system, most notably weekly mail service, an unheard-of achievement at the time. Franklin would also go on to found what would eventually become the United States Marine Corps in 1756, when he organized the Pennsylvania Militia in order to quell a series of Native American uprisings that beset the colonies during the French and Indian War of the 1750s and 60s. But it was the proposal and passing of a nefarious act by the British government in 1756 that would change the course of Franklin's life and set him on the path to becoming an integral part of the American Revolution. The act would impose a heavy tax on colonial America and would require most printed materials such as legal documents, books, newspapers, and playing cards to be produced on special stamped paper, which was produced in London and bore an official embossed revenue stamp. While Franklin lobbied heavily against the so-named Stamp Act while living in London, he was unable to prevent its passage, but nevertheless remained staunchly opposed to it, which naturally drew ire from British subjects. As such, he became the leading spokesman in Britain for American causes and interests and began publishing a series of essays in several London newspapers on their behalf, though they did little to sway the British public's opinion on such matters. In fact, by the late 1760s, the British government had begun imposing a series of measures to assert their dominance and greater control over colonial America. Despite the Stamp Act being repealed in 1766, other regulations soon followed, creating strong anti-British sentiment amongst the colonists. Realizing that an uprising was more or less imminent, Franklin returned to Philadelphia in May of 1775, shortly before the conflict that would one day be known as the American Revolution broke out. Upon his return, he was elected to serve as a delegate on the Continental Congress, the colonial American governing body. A year later, in 1776, he was part of the committee that drafted the Declaration of Independence, which proudly proclaimed on July 4th of that year that all 13 of Britain's colonies in America were free of the mother country's tyrannical rule. In desperate need of assistance in the fight, the Continental Congress sent Franklin as an ambassador to Britain's classic enemy, France, in an effort to enlist their help and support. A year and a half later, in February of 1778, they agreed and signed a military alliance that provided critical funds, soldiers, artillery, and supplies to the American cause. Thanks to the success of this trip, Franklin would become the fledgling nation's first ambassador to France, and it was he who orchestrated the Treaty of Paris in 1783, the document that would bring the bloody conflict to its end. Following the American Revolution, the members of the aforementioned Continental Congress were faced with a daunting task, the establishment of a new government. Having succeeded in gaining independence from Britain, they formed the Constitutional Convention, of which Franklin served as the delegate for Pennsylvania. At 81 years old, he was the oldest person on its board. After months of debate, including the drafting of a document that would become known as the Constitution of the United States, Franklin urged his fellow delegates to support and adopt it as he felt it would best serve the American people. Finally, in June, of 1788, after much deliberation, nine states ratified the Constitution into law. This was to be Franklin's last great achievement, as he would pass away the following year on April 17, 1790, at the age of 84. His funeral boasted some 20,000 mourners, including President George Washington. He was buried in Philadelphia's Christ Church Cemetery, the gravesite of which still receives several visitors from within the United States as well as abroad each year. Today, Franklin is largely remembered as a towering figure of the American Revolution, which makes sense given the amount of work he put into establishing the new nation. However, his political career has, and continues, to overshadow the various scientific and technical achievements he made throughout his lifetime. With such inventions as bifocal lenses, a musical instrument called the glass harmonica, and the lightning rod under his belt, the science community indeed owes him a debt of gratitude. Of these, perhaps the most famous is the lightning rod, which has a fascinating story behind it of which many Americans are familiar. 
On June 15, 1752, a storm system moved into Philadelphia. Franklin, who had been experimenting with electricity for years, mounted his horse and rode out to greet the gathering tempest to carry out yet another experiment, this one involving lightning. Having seen several fires break out around the city due to lightning strikes, he wished to create something that would not only prove that lightning was electricity, but also prevent the destruction it caused. Up until that point, lightning was generally considered to be an act of God. Though several preeminent scientists and thinkers believed it to be electricity, no one could prove it. Enter Franklin, ever the entrepreneurial spirit, who fashioned a kite and tied a metal key to its tail, which served as a conductor. Tying the kite string to a silk ribbon wrapped around his knuckles, he made sure to stand within a shed, that is, on dry ground, so as not to get electrocuted. Sure enough, the key received an electrical charge from the storm. This famed experiment resulted in the creation of the lightning rod, the earliest of which were simply 8 to 10 foot, 2.4 to 3 meter long iron rods, that, when connected to the ground, could prevent lightning-induced fires and damage. Despite this and several other innovations, Franklin never patented any of them. His reason, as written in his autobiography, was that, quote, As we enjoy great advantages from the inventions of others, we should be glad of an opportunity to serve others by any invention of ours, and this we should do freely and generously. Such a philosophy is a glimpse into his character, that of a good-hearted and charitable man for whom the betterment and advancement of mankind outweighed fame and profit. From humble beginnings as a printer to one of the founding fathers of a great nation, Benjamin Franklin's legacy continues to live on. Thanks for listening. Benjamin Franklin has always been one of my favorite figures in American history, and I'm glad I've gotten to share my interest with you. I hope you found this episode enlightening and insightful, as it highlights the life of a truly fascinating individual. If you've enjoyed this and other episodes of this podcast and wish to support me to ensure its future, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. By visiting anchor.fm slash historylovescompany, you'll be directed to three monthly payment plans that fit any budget. Listening and sharing help too, so please do so on all platforms. Join me again next week as we visit the Mesa Verde settlement in Colorado to explore one of the earliest indigenous cultures in the United States, and tune in each Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.